The Harry Corey Summer Sale is now on with massive savings and fantastic ideas to transform your home for less. Visit us in-store or online at harrycorey.com. Harry Corey, the curtain embedding specialist. The summer sale is now on. Well, I have a really special guest for this episode of Laughter Unlocked, and I can't tell you how excited I am to chat to Henry Naylor. Henry, hi, how are you? Oh, yeah, yeah, and I'm good, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we have one or two things in common. We're, we're both going to be performing at the Fringe this year, and we've both been in Warzone. I know, it's extraordinary. I mean, uh, because I, I hear you're learning how to do stand-up. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, I think <laughs> that is a Warzone <laughs> of its own. Uh, but uh, actually, how scared are you at the moment because some people say that the most scary thing they could think of doing would be standing in front of an audience for uh 20 minutes just talking i mean are you are you as terrified by that as you were reporting yes i and and in fact yeah that 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 subject comes up a lot of the time with people who want to tell people what i'm doing and the fact that i bring a bit of my kind of you know war reporting past into it 10 times scarier on a stage Ten times than being <laughs> than being shot at in the Balkans or uh, you know under mortar attack, and and actually you know you could probably answer that question better than me because you've performed for for years and years and years and I've only done it for relatively speaking about five minutes. Well, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. My my kind of background for for your punters out there is that um, I used to be in a double act called Parsons and Nail, and we yes. had a radio series on Radio Two for about five or six years. And then uh, I used to do a lot of writing for Spitting Image. Uh, and then I started, we, we got a radio series on Radio 2 called Parsons and Nailers Pull Out Sections. And the minute we were commissioned for that, 9-11 happened. And we were going to go to air and we had to get sort of delayed to this series because I, obviously the people that, that used to Radio 2 thought it was an inappropriate time to be telling jokes. And the BBC had a policy at the time of, of taste and decency. So they sort of said that, yeah, you, you know, they didn't want to be seeing any dead bodies on air. And our series had been sort of delayed by, uh, by two or three months. And I thought this policy of taste and decency was, I didn't agree with it. Because I think if, you know, if our country is sending people to, to die in our name, I think the very least you can do is acknowledge the sacrifice. And I think also that uh, if our government is killing people in our name, we should be seeing what they're doing and holding them to account. So I, I thought it was untasteful and undecent, this policy of taste and decency. Yeah. So I started writing this play called Finding Bin Laden. And I, I started watching the war on the TV, you know, it's on 24-7, on 24-hour rolling news, which is still quite new at that point, just to find anything funny and, and for research purposes and, and any little angles. And there's always something funny you can say about war. I was watching this one report from Kabul, and, and I don't know if you remember, there's a reporter called William Reeve from the BBC. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and he, and he was one of the only reporters who was in Kabul for the entirety of the war. And he did all his reports from a basement. And right at the end of the war, when the Northern Alliance are doing this big push into the city, uh, he did this report. He went, I don't know if you can hear, but there's a lot of bombs going off uh, outside. No, no, they're getting rather close. And that, that one was very close. And then, and then the next thing, live on air, he was, the studio was blown up. He was blown off his chair. And the cameraman ran in front of the lens and shouted, all sorts of experiences which shouldn't have been on the news. And I nearly fell off my own chair because the cameraman who ran in front of the lens was my old flatmate. 
<laughs> and this was a guy called Phil Goodwin, yeah. who, who I used to, to 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 share a flat with at, at, at uni, and I knew he'd gone into journalism, and then he went into sort of being a cameraman, uh, but I didn't know where. And so to see him in the middle of this this conflict was just incredible. Yeah. And so so I was writing my play, and, and sort of I got, you know, at the end of the war, I just phoned him up and I said, look, I want to check my script, you know, just sort of check the way I've got all the facts straight. And and Phil said, well, he said, I can't do that. He said, I'm a journalist, you know, I, I've got to keep up a standards of truth. I can't endorse your script if, you, if it's a, a fiction. But yeah. he said, if you want to check your facts, I'll invite you out to Afghanistan. I'll introduce you to the BBC fixers. So I, so I told this to a friend of mine. I got a friend from uh, from Greenock, no less. Uh, <laughs> Another war zone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that, yeah, I'm, not, I'm only kidding. I, I love the place. My wife's from Greenock, so anyway. <laughs> oh, really? So, yeah. All right. <laughs> but but he, he's um, an absolutely brilliant photographer. He won Scottish Feature Photographer of the Year two years running. And he, he won, as a director, he won at the Scottish BAFTA yeah. twice. Uh, and he's, he's called Sam Maynard, and Sam's sort of like, you know, tough as nails. And he sort of said, um, he said, so, so are you going to go? And I said, well, I can't go to Afghanistan, you know, it's ridiculous. He said, yeah, no, come on, I'll go with you and I'll, I'll take pictures. And so before I knew it, I went back to my friend and said, just said, yeah, all right, we'll go, we'll, we'll go to Afghanistan. And, and, and I didn't really realise what I was doing until it was kind of too late. I was kind of on the plane flying above Afghanistan, and you see those iconic, Brown mountains and and you know which you've only ever seen in in reports in the context of death and killing, and I thought, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> did you have to do any any? Did you were you offered any sort of hostile environment training before it, or did you just go in there? No, is green? None. Yeah, wow, completely naive, completely stupid, uh, and but in a way, I mean, I kind of, I mean, I've heard that you're, you're you've had a, a war correspondence background. Yeah. That's kind of what I wanted to do at uni. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you know, and, and I knew Phil was going into it and sort of stuff. But he was, you know, you could tell he was the real deal. He had this beautiful voice, like sort of, you know, a real BBC voice. Uh, and um, you know, I was a bit of a northern oof. <laughs> so it, it probably wasn't the right career for me and, and I, I kind of got sucked into doing comedy you know yeah. I did a student university review and Griff Reese Jones came to see it and he said you know can I buy your material yes I, I, and, I, I read that like, yeah he, he wanted to buy all your work off you you tended to sell no we <laughs> say uh, me and my mate I, I work with a comedian called Andy Parsons yes. uh-huh. who's, who's kind of quite well known uh, and um uh we both said look we don't want to sell you our stuff, it's ours, but if you want us to write stuff expressly for you and for, for, for Mel Smith, then we'll do that. And, and Griff said, you, you know, he said, yeah, yeah, come on, you know, all right, I'll take you on. We'll do Smith and Jones. And, and, and so we were commissioned writers for them for a couple of series. And we even went on tour. We were their support act for a while. So I owe a lot to Griff. But, um, but yeah, so, so that's, that's how I ended up in comedy. And, and Phil ended up as a, a war correspondent, you know. The bombs and bullets had to wait because you had some comedy to write. Quite right. So you, you found yourself there. And that was, that, that was for a particular piece of research for a writing project at the time. So t- tell me what you were kind of doing there initially. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I was writing a play. It's my first ever play for the Edinburgh Fringe. And it's called Finding Bin Laden. Yeah. Uh, and because it was my first play. And, and it's that thing when you're on the comedy circuit and you suddenly say, oh, I want to be a playwright. There's a bit of a sort of like, ooh, Mr. <laughs> Hoity Toity wants to be a playwright. <laughs> and 
I was absolutely terrified of this career change. And I really wanted my play to stand out. And I think it was probably that hubris and that vanity that sort of made me go go out there to sort of see it, you, you, you know. And, and going out with Sam and Sam took these extraordinarily good photos. I mean, honestly, I, 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 we... I have a sideshow in in my current show with all the pictures Sam took, and and there's uh, you know the seventy or eighty shots from from Kabul, and they're sublime. You know, you know, we did it in in the I did the show in the Hollywood Fringe just now, and I had somebody come up at the end saying some of those photos are Pulitzer Prize quality. Yeah. You know, they're really really good, and and so you know, going out with him was really good. And, and what I think what we were trying to do for the play finding Bin Laden. Instead of having a set as a backdrop, you know, Sam said, why don't we just take photos from the war zone, blow them up the size of the stage and get the actors acting in front of it? And, you know, to, to this day, I haven't seen anything like that on a theatre stage, mm-hmm. you know, so it was quite a radical thing to do in Edinburgh. And we had this great cast. I had sort of Dave Lamb, who was... Um, he was the, the lead in Come Dine With Me and Nina Conti was the female lead. And, you know, Dan Tetzel has been in everything, you know, Hollyoaks a lot. You know, all these people were starting out on their careers and I was starting out on mine as a playwright. And it was just one of those shows that really took off. Yeah. It, it was one of those, it was kind of like, you know, though I was saying to myself, it was the hot ticket. We yeah. sold out our entire run after about three days. Yeah. And it, and it, and it, 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 you know, and I got some of the best reviews I've ever had. And, and it kind of turned me from a sort of like, you know, an okay sort of comedian into a playwright, really. And the Middle East and Afghanistan and so on. I mean, that's really dominated your career in the last 20 years, hasn't it? I mean, you've, have you been out a few times? Have you been back since? Or I've, I've been to the, to, to the Middle East, but, yeah. and, you know, one of the plays I've written, a play called Angel, yeah. we've been working with, uh, it's about a Kurdish freedom fighter who uh, fought for the YPJ, the female yeah. sort of yeah. unit who helped repel ISIS in, in Kobani. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, so we've been working out with people in Erbil and, and places like that. And we, and we, we were we were trying to get a film made of it and, and it still might go ahead, but we were intending to actually shoot it in the ruins of Kobani, which would and could still be extraordinary. But I think it's slowly getting repaired as Kobani now. So yeah. I think, um, I think the need to film there pro- probably isn't as paramount as it once was. Yeah, really. yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's a real, so, so I, I mean, I, I think, you and I seem to have done things the other way around. You started started by being a war correspondent and doing stand up, whereas <laughs> yeah. I sort of started by stand up and going to a war zone. You know, I, I bring a little bit of that into the into the set that I do. I'm always feel as though I've been a little bit disloyal to it because there's a couple of particular incidents that I talk about in my kind of comedy routine that actually happened, but trying to get humour out of it. But one one's a really scary sort of ambush situation, which I, I've talked about in the podcast quite a bit. Lost part of my hearing in, in Kosovo. And I turn it into a joke, and it goes down quite well, and it's usually what I finish on the line. But I kind of think, you know, I'm almost been a bit disloyal to a really, really kind of serious situation. No, it's not. It's not disloyal. No, I'm, I'm going to take issue with that. I think it's brilliant <laughs> that you're doing it. And I think and, and I think it's brilliant that you're doing it because that's what, it's what we do as humans. I mean, our only way of coping with some stuff which is so bleak is to laugh at it. Yeah. And, and you, you know, I met some absolutely it was it was really interesting going into 
a, a war zone and meeting a lot of the correspondents there. They're all super bright, but mm. some of them are funnier than any comedian yeah. I've ever met. The gallows you know, humour comes into it, doesn't it? It is. I, I, and I think it's one of those things. It is so bleak and so tragic. If you didn't laugh, you, you, you would top yourself yeah, probably. Yeah, I, mean, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of alcoholism in journalism and, and, and things like that, people learning how to cope. But humour is one of those coping mechanisms. Yeah. And I think particularly this is one of the reasons that empowered me to go out there was I think what the journalists tend to see on the ground is not what we see on the news. It is Oh, uh, yeah. Now, on the ground, taste and decency. Uh, yeah. and, and sort of like the only person bearing the weight of seeing these awful events uh, uh, on the front line is the journalists themselves. Yeah. They're having to, to take on board the entire tragedy of the situation. Yeah. And I imagine that at a certain point that journalists feel like they're letting down the victims of war because mm-hmm. they can't truly tell their story. They can't truly emote. And, and I think that was what I wanted to bring out in my play, Finding Bin Laden. And, yeah. and also, I kind of thought, as somebody who was writing a lot of satire at the time, I was writing for Spitting Image, and I was writing for Parsons and Naylor all, all around this time, I kind of thought it's very easy as a comedian to sit behind a keyboard saying, oh, the government's crap and, and oh, this and that, and then move on to the next story. But there's no, we're, we're always seeing a news story through the lens of the press. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So at a certain level, our comedy is a lie. Yeah. Yeah, I know so I think I think going to an actual going and to actually experience a real uh, news event and be part of it and be Im- immersed in it, I think was very important for me as not just as a comedian, not just as a writer, but as a human being. I think, yeah, yeah. Y- y- you know, because it's very easy to be cynical, but it's sort of like, you know, I wanted to see the effects of war and, yeah. and what it meant. You know, not as some kind of disaster tourist, but as kind of as a, you know, I had a responsibility, I felt, to my audience to do that, to find some truth in my work, I think. And 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 it's helped me immeasurably as a playwright. And I'm sure, you know, Simon, when you start doing your your stand-up, if you are going to be talking from a perspective of, of somebody who has seen this event, it will give your work an immeasurable depth. So I tell a particular story about a true event this ambush in Kosovo when translator nearly died he was he was shot and I lost my hearing I'm in the front seat photographer guy called Chris Watt if you're listening Chris still love you he was driving saved my life um, managed to sort of navigate the car through the kind of hail of bullets the translator was shot through the shoulder I change it ever so slightly when I tell it as a, as a comedy routine because I kind of think right how can you possibly get a laugh out of what was you know, it was a, a really horrific situation. So I change it into we're in a van and there's various people from all sorts of different countries. Cut a long joke short. The, the, the final line is the translator had to say, fuck me, that was sore in four different languages. And <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. But I'm terrified that he'll see it one day and he'll say, well, that didn't, that didn't happen. But, uh, you know, but... but um. I digress because I was I was wanting to ask you about something else and, and I, I kind of went, went off the beaten track a little bit there. But they do say that, you know, that old cliche truth being the, the first casualty of war. When I was in Iraq, and I think I can probably talk about this now, it's pushing 20 years ago, I was embedded with the, with the military. I was embedded with the Scottish tank um, regiment, the Scots DG. I'm still in touch with a lot of the guys. Because I was embedded 
I'm not going to use the word censorship, but they had to to look at some of the stuff I was sending back before it went out. And it wasn't because they were wanting me to put a particular slant on what had happened, whether it was reporting on a tank battle that had just happened or or what was going to happen the next day. It was in case I did something really stupid and gave away positions or or gave away information that was of no real significance to the reader, but could cause them major problems from from a, a military point of view. Did you ever find when you were out there that were you surrounded by the military at all? Did you have guys advising you when you were when you you know when you were kind of um No, and I think that's part of the stupidity and the irresponsibility of it all actually. Yeah. I think uh we were introduced to a, a one of the fixes that the BBC uh recommended and we we just drove around in his private car. And it was still, you know, even though it was soon after the end of the war, there was still quite a lot of fighting going on. You know, you know, there were, there were. I mean, I nearly didn't go at all because, like, three days before we set off, a car bomb went off uh, in Kabul and killed off six Canadian peacekeepers. You know, and I so I, so I said to Phil, I said, "Look, this is crazy, isn't it? Aren't we doing something really stupid?" And Phil said, "No, you'll be fine." He said, um, "Just keep away from the bases." Because that's where the insurgents uh, and the Taliban are hitting because, mm-hmm. you, you know, that's where they get most impact. But no, no we didn't have any any sort of bodyguards or military. And to be honest, that put us and it put our fixer at risk. And this is, I talk about this in the show, you know, I kind of now know how irresponsible it was. But we went to one place where, I, I don't know, there's a place called the Dargillan Palace mm-hmm. in Kabul. Right. which is kind of like their Buckingham Palace. And it's on, it's in the middle of the plains and it's on top of a small rise. And sort of like it was as, as a strategic place, it was the place you had to conquer. You know, the Russians fought over it, the Taliban, the Mujahideen. Yeah. And we went to this and it was the, one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen. It was blown to pieces, you know, um, and there was debris everywhere. But you could tell it was like this spectacular building. You know, there's these huge columns of gold leaf on it. And yet there's just holes in the roof and there's girders hanging on by by just, you know, tiny bits of metal reinforcement and things. And we were walking around it and our fixer just started getting really, really animated. And, and, and we, we went down this spiral staircase and there was a hole at the bottom of the staircase, about the size of a bathtub, and he starts pointing at it, getting really, really excited. And and we said to to our fixer, we said, uh, "Oh, what's happened here? Something obviously, obviously happened here." And he said, "He said, yeah, he said last week, the Taliban planted a landmine here, uh, and it blew up as he was planting it." Uh, and I said, "Well, why, why was he planting a landmine here?" And he said, "Oh, this is to blow up foreign tourists." And I said, "Do you get foreign tourists?" And he said, "No, of course you don't." And I said, "So." you know, and he said, you would have been the first person here. And this was on day two. And we kind of thought, oh, God, you know, that that was meant for us. That was a proper proper reality check. What, what were your nearest and dearest making of it all when, when, you, when you said you were heading out? I don't, I mean, at the time I was single, I didn't have kids. I mean, I wasn't single, I had a girlfriend, but, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't married. And, and sort of like Sam, the press photographer, uh, at the time, I think we were. It, well, it's one of those things when you're a young man. I think I think we just had a bit too much. We were kind of egged each other on. If we hadn't have gone out together, I would have taken a lot 
lot fewer risks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, I, I mean, he he'd been a journalist, so I mean, part of me was like going, "Well, oh, I don't want to show I'm a chicken here." So, so you know, I I was sort of through vanity uh, was was taking greater risks than uh, I probably would have done if I left to my own devices. And I think Sam too. Sam, Sam at that time was going through a bad phase in his life. And I think he sort of said, you know, he almost had a death wish at that point. And, you know, and now he's, he's, he's delighted because he's got kids and all sorts, but sort of, you, you know. The, the, the words person of a, of, a, of a kind of, you know, photographer and writer double act, the words person is, has that extra responsibility because you're often the eyes and the ears. Because if, if a photographer's looking down a lens, He's not looking at what's coming behind them or what's coming from the side, you know. So you also have that kind of, you know, you have to know someone really well too, and and, and know how someone's going to react in a certain situation. And you had you been kind of quite good friends before you went out there. Oh yeah, yeah. No, yeah. He, he's one of my best men. Still is, yeah. you know. Um, I think also the risks photographers have to take are much more than a writer has to take because they have to see they've got mm. to get to the front the very front of the front yeah, line completely to see it whereas whereas the writer can always stand stand behind and sort of you know hear local fighters talk about the, the conditions of the front line they don't have to go there. no they can always, they, yeah they can catch your words can catch up yeah you can you can watch you can watch some bbc world in the hotel room at night and catch up that way and just scribble it down you know <laughs> but Afghanistan's not funny. It's at the Gilded Balloon TV dining room, four o'clock, August the 3rd to the 29th. Tell us a little bit about it. I think part of the reason I decided to write it, Simon, and write it now was because during the Edinburgh Fringe last year, you know, obviously it's a very compromised fringe yeah. because of COVID. During the Fringe, the Taliban came back into power. You know, I was watching it seeing those people at the airport running alongside the transport cargo planes which are taking off half empty and yeah. you know and I was I was seeing those those Afghans on the airport thinking God one of those could have been our fixer mm-hmm. uh, one of those could have been you know some of the kids that we met at the refugee camp and, and you, you know it kind of made me think there was something about and I, I think there's something about and we've been talking about truth and comedy there's there's something about I wrote a fiction about that war but there's something about my true experiences, which I think are, are more real. And the fact that I, I do care about people out there and I can talk about it, I've got their pictures and sort of, I think there's an emotional truth there that I could only do by, by relating this story. And I think it's very important to be talking about Afghanistan now because now the Taliban are back in power, journalists can't cover it. No, yeah. You know, and, and so there's people going through some horrific stuff out there. We don't quite know what, mm-hmm. but I think it's important from, from my perspective, I kind of thought, right, well, you know, I heard from firsthand accounts what the Taliban did the first time around. And I know what people out there can probably expect. And so by, by talk, by showing the photos and by, by talking an audience through it. I think there's uh, there was a necessary story to be told, and you know our fixer out there, who's a super guy, he's called Homayun. I've, uh, I've been in touch with him when he's been out there, and he's trying to get out. Yeah. 
And then he, after he worked with us, his English was so good, he ended up working for the UN and then he started working on women's rights out there. And when the Taliban came to power, he was a target. He yeah, was on the run. I was going to say, he, yeah, they'll have realised his importance. Yeah, and, and so, so I've been, you know, an email correspondence with him saying, are you getting out? And he sort of said the... He said the Brits were useless. Uh, uh, well, those weren't his words. <laughs> you know, he was very polite and diplomatic. But it sounds like we weren't taking hardly anybody back. I mean, yeah. I'm sure. I think we're getting Boris Johnson's dogs back or something like that. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, but he said the people who were being genuinely helpful were the Germans and the Canadians. Uh, and the Germans had uh, said that they'd take him. But he still hasn't got out. I spoke to the last time I emailed him was about a week ago. And he still hasn't got out because he said, look, priorities have changed in Germany because of the war with Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, you know, funds are being diverted in Germany to different sources and, and he's still out there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you get this as well, Simon. You must have met some people in, in the various wars that you've covered that you really like and... You feel powerless. There's yeah, nothing yeah. you can do Absol apart from talking about it. No, 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 completely. A absolutely right. And yeah, I mean, I was chatting to the, the the guy who was who was badly injured with me. I mean, I speak to him all the time. Speak to, speak to him on Facebook. He's hoping to come over to the UK. I, you know, later this year or the start of next year. And that's going to be. I mean, that's going to be quite a, a, a kind of powerful time. My son's now. He'll be twenty three. He's twenty three, and you know, he was four months old when this happened. And my youngest daughter wasn't born. And I'm really, really, I mean, I owe so much to a guy who was sitting in the back of a car and said to us, that's an, that, that's an ambush, slow down. Uh, sorry, don't slow down, speed up. He recognised the, the danger straight away. And, you know, had we gone by our initial instincts, it was, to give you a bit of background, we were round the bend, there was a car on the side of the road, bonnet was up, looked as though they'd broken down. Our instinct was to stop and help the guy. He recognised straight away this is an ambush. Put the foot down. Chris, the photographer, put the foot down, drove past. Within within two seconds, six rounds had been fired through the car and one through his shoulder. And, you know, but so I, I'm, I think about the guy every day and I'm going to get an opportunity hopefully soon to introduce him to my kids and so on. Yeah, so, yeah, I know I know exactly what you what you mean by that. You know, you, you, are, you do feel kind of powerless. Clearly, Kosovo's not a war zone anymore. They're all kind of getting on with things and they're, they're kind of living a, a fairly good life. But having someone really close to you, because you, you do, you, you you build an incredible bond with a fixer or a translator Absolutely. in a place like Kabul. Now, now the ta Taliban, yeah, it must, it, must, it must dominate your thoughts quite a lot. Well, I think that's, I mean, it does, doesn't it? I mean, so there's... Weirdly, I was shit scared <laughs> the whole time I was there. I was genuinely shit scared. And, and so, like, on the way out... I've never got more drunk in my life. Sam and I got absolutely hammered because like, the, the way of flying yeah. into Kabul at the time was you had to go and buy Azerbaijan Airlines and it kind of, mm -hmm. it used to stop in Baku and they, they to raise money for the, Afga, for the Azerbaijan government, you were made to stay the night in Azerbaijan. Uh, and uh, so, you know, on the way to Kabul, we had to stay a night in Baku and on the way back, we had to stay a night in Baku. And on the night back, I think we were so unbelievably excited to have survived we just got so so drunk uh and yeah. and and but there's something about it i think people do the war correspondence i know and i don't know if you this is true of you son they kind of get hooked to the adrenaline of it all because you never i felt i know i was shit scared the whole time but i'm I, before and since i've never felt more more alive 
you know, yeah. it's because yeah. all your senses are heightened. You know, you're looking out for dangers. And, and there were three or four times I thought, we're going to get killed here. I, I, yeah. I, you know, genuinely. And, and when, you've, when you've, you've had that sort of thing, you kind of... It's seductive in a weird way. Well, I think I think, and this isn't just journalists. I think you know maybe soldiers too. People, people who 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 live their life, you know, in dangerous situations, um, they kind of tend to want to become risk takers, even when they're back home. They drive their car a bit fast, you know, just take chances they don't necessarily need to. Ch- and I suppose subliminally, subconsciously, they are a bit kind of hooked on it, and the you know they want to just be close to danger, but. um it's all a bit heavy. This is all a bit heavy. We're trying to make people laugh here. <laughs> well, no, no, but, it's, no, but, but I mean, I think, though, I mean, you, you told me you, you're doing stand-up and you're sort of like saying you've got part of your routine is talking about what happened to you two in, in a war zone. And I think talk about that. Talk about, because we as an audience will love your truth and you will have a perspective that that nobody else can give them. Uh, and, you know, there's all sorts of people on the circuit that, you, you know, as you know, I mean, sort of like, you know, that there are people, there are people out there who are minor aristocracy, you know, that, uh, you know, I can think of a well-known popular comedian who everybody knows whose parents own a giant castle and they are, you know, barons, you know, yeah. Part of part of, genuinely part of the aristocracy, and then at the other end, you know, I know I know two people who've been served up to eight to ten years in prison for armed robbery. You know, you, you, but yeah. I think that the common thread that you have in uh, and and I think the comedians that very often stand out are the ones who have a story and tell it because you've got something that binds you set together, which goes beyond just individual jokes and I think that that was part of the problem why I as a stand-up was okay but I never sort of got to the very top level I don't think was because there wasn't a coherence to my story on stage you know I I used to write very strong jokes but you know if if a joke flopped I'd have to build the audience up again it wasn't the glue wasn't me uh it was it was the strength of the jokes and i i think i think you've got to get your audience to to sort of get on board and and i found that's what i've found for the first time in my career actually i think with this afghanistan is not funny because it is true and it's about me and it's warts and all uh, and because i'm not trying to you know, I admit I was trying to big myself up by by going, oh, I went to Afghanistan. Look at me, aren't I great? When I when I first went out there, when I came back, I thought, actually, no, my art is important. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's stand-up, whether it's comedy, whether it's plays, we have a responsibility to try and make the world a better place. And I think certainly in the case now about talking about Afghanistan, um, there is a gap in people's knowledge about Afghanistan. The, the, the press can't cover it. So art mm-hmm. can step up and, and should be stepping up to try and fill in that gap. And, and that's why I feel impelled to, to tell this story. Further reductions in the Harry Corey summer sale with massive savings and fantastic ideas to transform your home for less. Visit us in-store or online at harrycorey.com. Harry Corey, the curtain and bedding specialist. Further items reduced in-store and online. So it's going to be 
best part of a month, well, obviously being, being the fringe. Do you find, is it, it's obviously ready to go because you've, you've had it in Australia and America. What are you going to do with it when, when you get to the end of August? Will you take it elsewhere? Or are you going to start working on a new project? Well, I think so. I mean, um, I'm already in, in talk, uh, talks with uh, a New York off-Broadway theatre with about 180 seater uh, to do to do a, a, an extended run there, and and I'm sort of you know talking to London theatres at the moment and stuff. But it's something of the nature of this show because it, I, I really you know I want to do this show in as many places as possible, and I want as many people to see it as possible. Partly for for the reasons of yeah you'll get more money and exposure because it, but partly because I, I care about genuinely care about the issues like, like and like like you know I know people out there that I want to do my, my bit for and 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 I'm you know and I'm sure sort of like when you develop your routine as a stand-up, you might find yourself talking more and more about those things that you really care about in, in, in that arena. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I, I because I do, I am do a kind of 10 minute set, right? So it's just the kind of thing you've been doing, right? The, 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 at the beginning, so an, an open spot. I find when I, when I start talking about the war, the war stuff though, people are looking at me and they're thinking, my God, it's really interesting. Where's he taking this? You know, where is it? Where, where exactly. is it? And trying to, Trying to squeeze it all into ten minutes. So if I, if, I, if I'm going to develop that side of it, then I have to. It's got to be. It's got to be a longer set for a start because I, because I build in a little bit too about my time as a reporter and so in, in, in Glasgow and some of the crazy things that that throws up, and then just one or two observations, and you know, before you know it, well, ten minutes disappears in absolutely no time. Although it feels like a it feels like a lifetime when you're on stage, I suppose. Well, but, but I mean. Uh, and one thing you you will be great at is telling stories because that's your job. So if so if you build a set around telling stories, I mean, I, I, honestly, I think it's conceivable that you go straight from doing a, a, a ten minute set to an hour set because once you, yeah. I mean, you'll have. I mean, what I've found with this current show that I'm doing about Afghanistan is not funny. I didn't have to learn the script because these were all the stories I told my friends down the pub. And I'd worked yeah, out the yeah. timing and I'd worked out what, you know, I kind of done my open spots just by having a pint, you know, sitting with my, yeah. my buddies. And uh, and I imagine you've got loads of those being a journalist mm-hmm. because they happen to you. You can really feel the truth of the audience, the story within the audience. Yeah. You know, they, they can see when I'm hurting, they can see when sort of like uh, I'm embarrassed and ashamed and, and all those kind of things. And, it gives a sense of drama to the piece. And I think sort of like, you know, that in a stand-up show. Now, I think next year you're going to book yeah. an hour. Tell <laughs> you're ready to the sun, you're going to do an hour. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love nothing more than to be able to not so much ad-lib it. But when, you, you know, when you're doing a, a set of 10 minutes and you're on with other acts, you can't overrun. You've got to be tight. So as you, I've kind of got to stick to a script as much as I would love to say and what else happened and you know and just let it kind of wander a little bit let my mind wander i'm still at that stage where i'm watching the clock more than anything else you know and uh so if anything i'm probably a little too scripted i suppose but um you know if i can develop it and do maybe longer than 10 minutes do a 20 or who knows even an hour I wouldn't be quite as regimented, you know. Yeah. But I feel as though I'm kind of, you know, right, I've got to do this bit at that point. I've got to do that bit. And I hope it doesn't come through too much, you know, when I'm on stage. But, you know, when you look back at yourself, the first time you, you ever stood up on a stage to make people laugh, 
how do, how do you recall what kind of person you were? I think I, re- I remember when, I mean, sort of like I was in, uh, I kind of started in the late 80s doing, doing comedy, I think. And it was a, quite an aggressive circuit in those times. You know, it's sort of like it was a circuit of Alexi Sale and uh, it was quite confrontational. And so I think I was playing something I wasn't when I first first started doing the circuit. I think I was trying to be, you know, come on, have a go, and you, you, you know, and, and that that's not me. And I think I've found my voice now, but it, it takes people a long time. And there's a brilliant comedian, a fabulous comedian called Robin Ince. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Robin. And he yeah, was saying have, on Facebook yeah, yeah. this year, uh, uh, he's like saying, look, I've been doing this 30 years and it's taken me a while, but I've kind of, you know, I've finally found out how to do this job. And he's always been great. But I mean, I think he's really found his voice. And I think with this show, Afghanistan is not funny. I think it's probably the best thing I've ever done because I've actually found found out who I am or how an audience perceives me to be. But I mean, there are other comedians. I mean, I remember when I started out, Stuart Lee was, was uh, starting out at the same time. And right from the get-go, he had that sort of persona and, and true, and he was brilliant, you know, it's sort of like, so, you, you know, Robin might say it took him 30 years and he's, he's there. Stuart, I would have said, was there after six months. He, he sort of, yeah. he had a very strong vision of who he was and what he wanted to do. And I, and I don't think, I mean, I, I think different comics arrive at that at different times. The, the, this show is pretty much you on your own. So it's not as though you're on the stage of other people. So it's kind of, it's been it's pretty stripped back as though it's just one man speaking. Oh, you'll have a nice backdrop and you'll have great images and so on. Yeah. So, but it's not. It's obviously not stand up. But um, how how do you how how natural does it come to you to to kind of talk about a very very dark situation and make people laugh about it? I mean, it's a hell of a difficult thing to do. Well, I think you're given a bit more license if you're doing something which is which is a drama. It's the same as doing stand. It is actually the same tools to stand up. I, I, and I, you know, I, I will slightly take issue with saying it's not. It's not stand up. It is stand up. But instead of going set up, set up, laugh, you go set up, set up, gasp, set up, set up, cry, set up, set up. You know. So, so a lot of the the, the mechanisms are very similar. I think. Yeah. So yeah. I, I mean, yeah. When I said not not stand up, not stand up in the traditional sense of yeah. what, what people would recognise, but. Uh... So you're you're going to be and and the show's obviously an hour long. How do you introduce your background first? Tell me a little bit of the structure of the show. Yeah, I mean, well, the basic structure is is me writing topical. You know, I talk about writing topical comedy. You know, I will give the audience a few tips how to to write topical jokes, uh, and then I talk about seeing my friend being blown up on telly. Then you know, coming up with the idea to write a play then going out to Afghanistan to research it. And really, in drama, I think it's very important to have an arc to your story. You know, so I I changed from being an ambitious comic to being somebody who learns a sense of of moral responsibility with their act. So, you know, that's part of the reason why I I transferred from being a a stand-up into being a playwright, because I think the points I want to make, which I think might stimulate public debate or might help people talk about issues which might make the world a better place are things that I can only really do with drama. There are, there are comics who, who can do it, but I think that there's, there's something about the nature of a joke 
a really funny joke releases tension in the room. Uh, and sort of, I think so like with a drama, you can make a bigger, more sophisticated point than you can with, with, a, with, a, with a stand-up set where you've got to do lots of little tidbits, yeah, yeah. really. Edinburgh is obviously somewhere very close to your heart. How many, how many times have you been up for the Fringe now, do you think? I think it's, it must be over 20 times. Uh, and because uh, I first came in about 1985, I was in a school play. My, uh, uh, when I was about 16 or something like that, uh, my sort of teacher brought, brought us up there and we were performing miles out of town in some school and it was a show called Aphrodite. And it was set in ancient Greece. And there were about 12 of us in the cast. And I think we probably never got more than about five people in the audience. (laughs) (laughs) We outnumbered the audience. And, and, you know, set in ancient Greece, but there was kids there with sort of like, you know, spectacles on. It was pretty dire, I think. But, you know, I loved it. I loved it from the get-go. And there's something about the fringe, I think, that is Truly wonderful. I think it's one of the great things in, in sort of humanity, really, Get, seeing all these sort of oddballs and misfits coming meeting together who've all got this desire to put a show on and stuff. And, and, and sort of like, you know, I, I think for a lot of performers, like you're meeting your tribe when you yeah. get up there. You're meeting people who get yeah. you. You know, you know I, I, I absolutely love it. And I, I wouldn't want to miss... And there's something about fringe theatre which you don't get in... You know, when you're doing West End theatre, you you it takes about 18 months between them saying, giving you the green light to put on a script for it to going on yeah. stage. If you're writing topical stuff, you know that that's that's yeah, not no, good enough. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, so and I think that happened with there was a David Mamet play uh, recently, which was about the Me Too, about Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, and and that was you know he clearly wrote it sort of pretty soon after Me Too happened. But it was on stage nearly two to three years later, and and the debate had moved on, yeah. And the issues had all changed, and 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 theatre needs to look at that because there's the danger of it not being relevant on, on part of the public debate, yeah. you know. So the, the the debate moves on before before they stage stuff, yeah. you know. There's too many musicals on, you know, and I, and I think so. So for me, I think some of the most exciting theatre I've seen is is fringe theatre. For a satirist, though, you must be spoilt for choice. The world's going at the moment with everything that's going on. I tell you, well, I was going to write a play about about sort of uh, Boris Johnson, and I did all the research, and I just thought, do you know what? I don't think it's going to last a year. And and I thought, I, if I put this on stage in Edinburgh, and he sort of resigns before, or he's kicked out before uh, we go on stage, you know, I'm so glad that happened. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine doing a Boris show now in, in a month's time? You know, when we got a new prime minister, it'd be crazy. I think there's one or two acts that will that probably have been kind of, you know, frantically rewriting in the last week or two. I mean, he will probably he'll still be there. He'll still be yes. He'll still be prime minister, but um, but so much has happened. Of course, the political scene up here too. I don't know if you if you if you follow that closely, but obviously, yeah, 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 but yeah. it's not. I mean, it's clearly not going to come into the come into your Afghanistan show. But I mean, uh, but if you if you do have a, do you ever kind of have a little nod to kind of the local scene in Scotland? Not in this show. I, I mean, I have done a lot in the past with stuff. I think though, in this show, I don't really talk. There's not really a nod towards English politics, yeah. really either. I mean, it, it's more just talking generally about sort of 
how the West interacts with the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So that that's a more generalised yeah. thing, which applies to all Western countries. So the issues are relevant to Scots as well as English people. Yeah, of course. You know, it's a more generalised thing. The main character, apart from myself, is is Sam. You know, I have to do my Scottish accent, which isn't very good, and I apologise in advance to everybody in Scotland. <laughs> um but I'm sure they'll they'll understand when they see some of the other accents. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not a talented mimic. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean I mean so so one of the main people in it is is a, a Greenock lad, and and so so yeah, there is a, a, a local there is local content within it. Well, you have pronounced Greenock properly, which is always a good thing. We hear some from down south <laughs> calling it Greenock, not Greenock. Edinburgh is going to be a bit crazy this year, isn't it? I mean, obviously, as you alluded to before, last year was kind of, you know, it was very, a partial fringe, I suppose you would call it, and then there was nothing in 2020. So I think, you know, for a lot of the Edinburgh regulars, they're really going to, they're not going to let the hair down this year. Well, I think that's right. And I think sort of it's been very, because I, I did Adelaide and I did the Hollywood Fringe directly before this. And uh, in Adelaide, it's quite interesting because they, they were coming out of lockdown just before the Fringe. And so there's still a lot of people wearing masks. People were, were obliged to wear masks in the audience. The audience are operating at 75% capacity. A lot of the locals were nervous about going out to see stuff. And, and I think that affected theatre because I think a lot of the audience tends to be a bit older than it would be for stand-up but I have to say out there it was great for numbers for me personally because I've been there year in year out and I think sort of people weren't taking risks on new stuff on new acts they were going oh okay if I'm only going to see two or three shows this year I don't want to see more than that in case I expose myself to COVID yeah. I'll go with people I know are reliable and I, and I think I have that, you know, without wanting to sound immodest, I think I sure. have that reputation sure. Sure. out in Adelaide. Hollywood Fringe, I've never done it before. Uh, and it was quite similar. Lots of people still wearing masks, lots of people afraid to go out. And there, it's the first time I've done it. So my numbers weren't great there. And they weren't for any of the international acts. It was only local acts who seemed to get um, get audiences. But uh, So, so it, it's going to be very interesting to see how audiences respond in Edinburgh. I think it's going to be quite similar to, to Adelaide. I think there's going to be, I think if you're a established act who people trust, I think you'll get audiences. I think if, if, if you're a new act, it might be harder work. Yeah. Having said that, I don't know. I, I think in, certainly in London, I don't know if it's true of, of Edinburgh and, and Scotland generally, people have had enough. They want to go oh, out now. Yeah. And so I think things are beginning to sell quite well in London now. Not, you know, not completely back to normal, but, pre but pretty well. Uh, so it might be the same in, in uh, Edinburgh. Although I think you've had, I think Nicola was slightly stricter, wasn't she, than, than Boris? And well, uh, depend. Yes, yes. I mean, there was there was a lot of schools of thought on that, and who who would act first? And it was a, there was always a joke that one would watch the other's press conference and then try and or get a sneak preview of what they were going to say and announce it ten minutes earlier. You know, but yes, no, we we were <laughs> uh, we were we were still wearing masks, and it was it was fairly strict when things had opened up. I think in comedy as well. I think people were. A lot of acts were able to perform down south when the, the, the in the Scottish comedy circuit was still pretty much kind of locked down, you know. So mm. we were, I think, we were a, a week or two behind. I think, yeah. But um, mm. I can't let you go without talking about spitting image um, because it, no. <laughs> you, so you, you, so you were involved in the, in the writing 
what back in the yes. uh, the inception of the, of the whole the whole thing, yeah. Uh, uh, no, not at the very very start. I was there no. in the, because I see you're, I mean, far, think... you're far too young. <laughs> uh, I, I was. I think I was involved in the last four or five series. Yeah. Of the original, of the original spin it came back again a few years ago. Which I thought was a curious decision, to be honest. I think there was some magic about the original series because certainly when it started, there, there were only four TV channels. And on Sunday nights by TV, it, it basically had a clear run, didn't it? I mean, I think the BBC had some, didn't, didn't put up much against it. And it used to get the highest ratings in TV. And that for a satire show... It, it's remarkable. And what age were you when you were when you started writing? You must have been hell of a young, were you? In, in your kind of early twenties. Oh, you charmer! Uh, I would have <laughs> been about twenty-four, I think. I, and there was, you know, when I first started, there was uh, there was people like Stuart Silver and Mark Burton and Pete Sinclair. There, there were people, amazing writers, some of whom sort of ended up writing things like Madagascar and some extraordinary stuff. I can't even remember what my first... It's so long ago, but I remember being so excited getting stuff on there. And then sort of we became commission writers and then we became some of the lead writers. And that, and that there was something... There was a joy in terms of... There was all sorts of things going on in the show, which uh, little in-jokes that we had. Like there was, a, there was a character called Sad Man that the puppeteers created, and it was the producer. <laughs> but he didn't know that. <laughs> And the producer had this nervous tick where he'd go, oh, like that. And we, we had this character called Sad Man and it went on there and he was going, oh, like that on the, uh, uh, in the show. And um, I, I remember everybody was smirking when the producer came on set to look at this, this uh, sketch. And he'd go, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, great, great. And wandering off. And we're going, he didn't know. He didn't recognise his puppet. was was him. He didn't even oh. recognise But then there was other things like... Um, Jeffrey Archer phoned the show up and said, when are you going to make my puppet? <laughs> and, you know, the producers came in to the writer's room and said, right, we are never making a puppet of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, just to wind him up. And, and so, so we never made a Jeffrey Archer. And then there was other things. There was rumours that members of the cabinet were having an affair and we, 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 would, we would have a sketch set in a restaurant where these two members of the cabinet were at dinner together holding hands, but it was filmed so they were slightly out of focus. <laughs> so so you could kind of think, is that that cabinet member and that cabinet member? I don't know. I can't, I'm not quite sure. So it's suitably, you know, it was just a little little bit ambiguous. But there, 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 there was all sorts of little things like that going on. It was brilliant. They do say that the current the current politicians, they're all beyond satire anyway. I mean, where would you start? I mean, in, in, at least back in the kind of, you know, 80s and 90s, we had, I suppose, a lot more respect for the politicians then than we do now? I mean, I don't know what, what you make of what's going on um, in the Tory leadership. I, I, well, I think, I, 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 no, I agree. And I think we did have respect. And I think for the single reason that politicians were allowed to speak their mind a bit more. Yeah. A bit more integrity, though. You know, I think sort of like now, now the whips are so strong. Yeah. And it's so frowned upon for people to speak out. Like this whole incident with Boris recently, where there had to be a certain number of MPs who'd sent in a letter to the 1922 committee um, before a leadership election could be, could be triggered. Um, it was all done secretly. You know, I, I remember you used to get people like Tony Benn, who would just say what he believed and what he genuinely cared cared about, and he would be completely odd to this party. 
But it was great. You'll get a debate stimulated and sort of like the amount of people like that. Well, if people do speak out, they generally tend to be nutters, yeah, yeah. you know, rather than, than sort of, so, so I think politics has changed. Yeah. I am really going to have to watch my time here. We're, we're, we're just about on the hour mark. I'm absolutely going to make sure I get along to see you. I am on for two days. You're on for a month. So, you know, I'll, <laughs> I've got more, I've got more chance of making it. So it's going to be the, uh, that's the Gilded Balloon TV at Dining Room at four o'clock. Is that a good time for the show? Four o'clock? Is that? Do you get that? Do you have much of a say in it? It is. A, no, I, I mean I always do that time slot in that venue. So yeah, you know, if people people know where to find me, if if people are sort of you know I've liked my shows in the past, they'll know where I'll be. But I think sort of at theatre tends to be. It's just the way that the way that the fringe stretches. Theatre tends to be in the afternoon. Comedy tends yeah. to be in the evening, and uh, which is a shame. I think I wish we were providing more variety across the board. I mean, sort of like the only venue which really seems to be doing theatre in the evenings is, is Summer uh, Summer Hall, and um, I, I think it's getting a free ride at the expense of all the other venues. So I, I wish there'd be a bit more imagination by by the other venues, particularly the the big four. You know, I wish they'd put more than just comedy on in the evening. Well, Henry, it's been an absolute blast. It's a pl- pleasure talking to you. And um, hopefully we'll speak again and we'll kind of get in touch with you and let you know how my own career is going. Um, but um, I want to see yeah. you, all right. Yeah, I'm, let's have a point about yeah, it. Absolutely, you yeah. I, I, will, I, will, I will look you up and um, I'll come along and watch the show. I'm, I'm, Afghanistan's not funny. Can't wait to come and see you. Um, but it's been a blast having you on Laughter Unlocked. Thanks very much indeed for, for taking the time. Oh, bless you. And break your leg. Good luck. I hope it all goes Thanks well very much. with you with your performing it. So you, you, you're doing a brave thing, but to be honest, it was a braver thing being a walker <laughs> respondent. Don't kick yourself. Anything else? <laughs> Henry, thanks again. Speak soon. Cheers, mate. See ya. Cheers. Cheers.